you, we're going to turn to Mark's gospel just now, Mark chapter 9, uh, continuing our, our series in, in Mark's gospel. I have to confess at the outset that I wrote the, the bulk of this sermon uh, when I had a migraine, so I don't know what that means for uh, intelligibility or understanding of this or how uh, clear this is going to be, but we will be reliant on, on, on God's Spirit. Um, so, but let's read this, this passage together. Uh, Mark chapter 9, it's page 1012 in, in mine, it's probably quite similar to yours. It's the count of the transfiguration, but then moving on a, a little bit beyond that. Mark 9 and verse 2, let's hear God's word. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There, he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had, raised, had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. And when they came to the other disciples, they, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, Take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, 
everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him and violently came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. And after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. We pray that the Lord would add his blessing to his word and as we reflect on it now. At this point in our service, I was tempted this morning to do something slightly interactive. If you are under a certain age, you will know what a meme is. If you're over a certain age, bear with me. But I was tempted maybe to get you to Bluetooth your meme to David at the back there, who's now got a certain panic going on. And I thought that might be a little bit much, but um, the, the typical meme for someone in the church sound desk is this. You know, when something goes wrong, uh, everyone immediately turns around. And uh, that's what, if you're in the sound desk and something goes wrong, that's what you see. Everyone's staring at you. But I, I thought I would maybe think of a couple other uh, memes just at this point to, to get us understanding what one of these humorous things is. Uh, I'm sure you've had that. You know that awkward moment when uh, you sing and the, the praise group were, were delaying ever so slightly? I'm sure that was going on at some point earlier uh, to, to today as well. I certainly did hear it last week when there was someone standing behind me. Can't remember who that was. Uh, but Or what about last Friday? Was that you leaving work? There's my favourite one, I have to say. An hour after doing a little bit of exercise, checking my abs. And a final one for all the parents out there. <laughs> and if you are a 27-year-old parent, you will know exactly what that feels like. Um, Actually, I was just thinking about th th this whole thing uh, about generating memes, why it's such a, a thing in our culture, is that psychologists have analysed that a, a little bit. And really, it's about trying to cope. It's a coping mechanism to be able to try and deal with all the, the things that life throws at you, all those negative things. And it's also the fact that we're able to share that experience with others so that you can see that there are other people who can understand what it is that you're feeling. So there's a, a camaraderie that comes with that shared experience. And that's why we, we, we like to do it. So thinking about how you cope with life, that's where I want to park this for just a couple of moments just now and get you to think. Tell me, how do you cope with whatever it is that life is throwing at you? So those issues, those struggles in life, the, the difficulties that you are coming face to face with, what is it that, what do you do to try and get through whatever it is? How do you get to the end of the week? How 
Do you manage to have enough emotional energy to get through whatever it is that you have to do? And with that, I want you to completely park that thought just where it is right now and to leave that there for for a few minutes. I'm going to turn to the passage now. Hopefully, if you have uh, Mark 9 still open in front of you, I should have preached the first 13, 14 verses last week. Uh, but I, I had to change what we were doing because Ken was coming uh, to, to, to speak and giving him the, the opportunity to, to choose his own passage. So that meant I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll put what I should have preached last week and put it with the, past, the second half of that, what we read today also, to do those two passages side by side today. Now, what that means by necessity is that I can't deal with either section in as much detail, so we'll be skimming a little bit more than what we would have done uh, before this point. But the advantage of of that is that having the, the wider look at times means that we just see different things that perhaps we wouldn't have seen if we were looking in a lot more detail in the passage. So... Right now, I'm going to try and deal with the the transfiguration aspect of this, what we've read today, in a much quicker way than I would have before. And if there's one lesson that comes out of this passage, if there's one thing that the transfiguration is really trying to get across to us, I think it is surely simply, sorry, could someone advance the, the next slide that's going to come up? And it's saying that what the transfiguration actually does, surely, is that it genuinely, truly reveals Jesus as he really is. It's, it's showing his, his real character. It's showing who he really is. It takes away the veil so that for the first time, possibly, we're, we're able to understand this is who Jesus is. Uh, and as we, you cast your eye over those few verses you'll see that there are so many connections to the Old Testament. Uh, It's evident in verse 4 because you see who's there. Uh, Elijah's there, Moses is there, and they're chatting to to Jesus. So immediately you're thinking of these characters from the Old Testament. Luke, in his account, Luke 9 verse 31, actually says what Moses and, and Jesus were chatting about. It says that they were chatting about his departure. And the word that is used for departure in Luke's gospel is they were chatting about his exodus, which is another Moses connection, another Old Testament connection. And as we think, there's even more connections with what Moses was doing, because you will remember that what Moses did is that he went up a mountain, Mount Sinai, and as he was going up a mountain, what Moses wanted to do on that occasion was that he said to God, I want to see your glory. I want to see your, your inexplicable, your, your overpowering, your raw glory. That's what I want to see. That's what he was expressing to God. And of course, God said, well, you can't because anyone who sees my glory will die. But here's what I will do for you. I will put you in a special place in the cleft of a rock and I'll pass by and you will see something. And as that account goes on a, a, a little bit more, you, you will know that even when Moses went back into the camp, his, his face had a reflected glory 
of the glory of God. It had such an impact upon him. And so when we come to Jesus now, the connections here, the similarities is that, again, they're going up a mountain. There's talk here about glory. There's, there's also a voice. There, there's a cloud. And so all these senses are here, but most significantly, what we see is the fact is that Jesus was transformed. There's this glory, verse 3, his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could, could, could bleach them. And so you say to yourself, is this just a repetition of all that's been happening with Moses in the Old Testament? And we would have to say, whilst there are similarities, in no way is this simply a repetition of what's happening because what all that Moses was doing was that Moses was experienced, experiencing a reflection of glory in the way that the moon might reflect the light of the sun. But Jesus himself, if you look at verse 2, it says, he was transfigured before them. He's not simply reflecting something. Jesus himself was changed. There is such a, a difference of quantity between what Jesus is doing and what Moses, or what occurred to Moses. When we see Jesus in this transfigured sense, this is the reality of who God really is. If I read from Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, it tells us about who Jesus really is. It says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So what we see in this account of the transfiguration is this complete sense of otherness of who Jesus really is. It's, it's reinforced in verse 7 with this idea of the cloud coming and, this, and the cloud envelops them and, and covers the people who are at the top of the mountain. And the complete otherness of who Jesus is is again reinforced in verse 8 where it simply says that suddenly Moses and Elijah are gone. There's no one else there and the only one left is Jesus. And this is Mark's way of saying this is the only one who is significant, the only one that you need to see. And this is the Bible's way of saying just how significant Jesus is. He's not just a Bible prophet. He's not just a good Bible teacher. He's not even someone that you can deal with lightly. Actually, when we're thinking about who Jesus is here, Jesus takes away the simple options that you have about how you interact with him and how you deal with him because Jesus is so utterly different. So if you're here today and irrespective of, you, of whether you know a lot about Jesus and that you've got huge Bible knowledge or you only know a little bit, I want to say that Jesus, as he's presented here in this account, is presented as someone that you simply can't take a little bit off or you can't take the little bits that you like and absorb those into your lifestyle. If Jesus is who Jesus 
as he is presented here in this passage, then he completely takes your middle ground and so that all that you have is that Jesus and Jesus alone, so that this calls for a real radical discipleship. And he is calling you to make choices that are huge choices. It's, it's, it, it's Jesus and you take them all or you take none. We talk so often about having a foot in two camps and we know what we mean by that in that we want a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of ourselves. And if you have been struggling with maybe that understanding and dealing with Jesus, this passage today is telling you to make a choice and follow Jesus and give your life to Jesus. And perhaps there has been some moment in your life where, where out of everything you suddenly realize that that God has been speaking to you and God has been speaking to you by his Holy Spirit that he reveals the reality and the depth of who Jesus is and you're thankful for those moments when God became so clear to you and that you understood that and that, and that you know that in those moments God spoke to you. And that's what I think this account of the, or the transfiguration is really all about. And if I'd been preaching on this last week, I would have left it there. I have to say, I would have taken twice as long to say it, but I would have left it at that point and say, this is all, this is all that you're meant to see. You're meant to see Jesus and you're meant to worship Jesus and you're meant to honor Jesus and you're meant to take Jesus. But by putting these two strange passages side by side in the way in which they're presented here were, I, I think, meant to see something additional. Because the next section brings Jesus and his disciples into a situation of chaos. After they've left the mountain, look where you see them in verse 14. It says, When they came down to the other's disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and teachers of the law arguing with them. And actually, that's another Old Testament connection because you remember whenever Moses came down from the mountain, having experienced this wonderful sense of who God was and he had received the two tablets on which God had written the Ten Commandments, Moses came down the mountain and what happened when he came down, the people were, were having a party and they were worshipping the, the golden idol. And so there was that chaos again that, and there is that sense of connection between Old and New Testament here but what's the argument about? In verse 17, someone speaks up and says, here's what it's about. Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Here's a guy whose son's really ill, struggling. It's a reminder, I think, of the pain, the tragedies of life the uncertainties of life, even the disappointments that we experience in life. And by putting these two passages side by side, one, there is this sense of, of wonder and glory and excitement and, and joy, but putting it right beside this other passage where you're immediately reminded of the pain and the insecurities and all that is not pleasant about life, we are reminded, I think, and the lesson that immediately comes out is simply the next one, which is that life, the way in which we live it, the tragedies that we encounter, 
sometimes make it really hard to keep on trusting and believing Jesus because we see that it is hard. You know, the disciples express that at verse 28. After this whole incident, they say to Jesus, Jesus, why couldn't we fix this? Why couldn't we drive this out? And Jesus answers them. But it's also when you go back to the father of the boy, in verse 22, and you have the sense of uncertainty, the sense of pain, and the, the sense of terrible angst in this man's life. In verse 22, he says, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And I'm sure you've been in moments like that where you've expressed that utter pain. And the sense of identity that the father has with his son's pain. If you're a parent, you, you will know that. You would do anything to take it away from your kid. And it's not simply saying, take pity on him. It's take pity on us. So what this passage, I think, reminds me of is that even though I believe in my heart of hearts that God has a good and perfect plan, I still find it a bit of a struggle to believe that really in my heart because of the difficulties that I face and that you face and that emotional intensity. I have felt it. You will have felt it. If there's anything that you can do, take pity on us. And I'm sure in a gathering of this size, there are lots of people here who could share stories about what you have been through, about what you have been doing, or even what you're currently struggling with. And what I also want to say is that there is no point going through life, sailing your way through life, without an understanding and a theology of the difficulties and the struggles of life. And if anyone has been telling you that if you're a really good Christian, or anything that you've been reading or watching and is saying, if you're a really good Christian, you will not experience any pain. That's not true because that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says in this life, you will face tribulation. And so really it can all boil down to one consideration. Whatever you're going through right now, will it make you wiser and deeper? Or will it make you hard and bitter? Will what you're going through bring you closer to God? Or will it push you away from God? And as I think about that, I am so glad that the final lesson that I'm going to try and bring out of this passage is that Jesus never seeks perfection in us. He doesn't have a level of faith that is required. You will notice when the father initially answered Jesus and talking to Jesus, what he says to Jesus, and it's a bit of a slight that he presents to Jesus because what he says in verse 22 is, help us if you can. And Jesus doesn't let that slip because Jesus in the very next verse, he says, if you can. Because the slight that's expressed in the Father's voice 
must come down to this thought, either Jesus, God, either you can't fix this or you don't want to fix this. And before we are too hard on this man, I think we are exactly the same. That we have this thought in and of ourselves, whenever we're going through something, whenever we're praying about something, we have those same doubts. Either God doesn't want to fix this, or God can't fix this. So I said, in verses 23 and 24, Jesus does flip that round. It says, if you can, said Jesus, but everything is possible for the one who believes. And then immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And there in that verse is the wonderful mixture of faith and doubt. But also as I read that, there is the unmistakable proof that Jesus accepts you as you are with all of your foibles and with all of your hang-ups and whatever else you feel you lack today, Jesus is saying, I will take you as you are. Because it's not perfection that Jesus is after, but what Jesus is after are people who are desperate enough to cling to him and say, Jesus, I need you to fix this. And is that the point that you have reached today? Where you will know and you are desperate enough to encounter Jesus and say, Jesus, I need your help in this. And that's particularly relevant with the thought with which I began this sermon today. Because I was asking the question, how do you cope? How do you cope with whatever it is that life is throwing at you right now? How do you get by? What confidence do you have that you will make it? What confidence do you have that you will get to the end of the week? If you were going to sit beside me in one of those seats out there, what could you tell me your confidence is to get by, your coping mechanism. When we think of all the people in this story, who do you think, out of all the people there, who do you think actually had the most confidence that Jesus could fix this? Was it the boy himself? Was it his dad? Was it the, the bulk of the disciples as they were arguing with everybody else? I don't think it's any of those people. I think the people who had the most confidence were the three disciples who were with Jesus up on the mountain. Peter, James, and John. And the reason I believe they had the most confidence out of everybody else was because having been up the mountain, they saw something Utterly different. They saw something that up to that point had been hidden because they saw Jesus as he really was. They saw the glory and the wonder and the majesty of Jesus. And in those moments, surely they worshipped Jesus. They recognized that in those moments, there was something completely different about Jesus. And it's that realization that changes you. 
There's another verse in the Bible that's, that, that, that's coming into to my head just now, and it's Romans 8 and verse 16, which says that the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. It's what convinces us that we know and love Jesus, that we are his children. It is the Spirit testifying with our spirit that we are his children. And when you know who Jesus is, and when you see the reality of who Jesus is, it's as definite as a voice from heaven, as here in verse 7 saying, this is my son, listen to him, because the Spirit is testifying and telling you this is who Jesus is, and you simply need to thrust your weight upon him because he will look after you and he will be your saviour. And my prayer for you today is that you will know that surety and that you will know that that is your experience, is that this Jesus is the one who can change things, the one who can hold you, and the one who will see you through, and that you will get to the end of the week. Let's pray. Lord, simply show us Jesus. The majesty, the wonder, the reality of who he is. And in some ways, Lord, that thought might terrify us because you are altogether different. But Lord, like so many of your people in the scriptures, people who know and love you, we long to know you more. We long to know you as you really are so that we will have the confidence to get through life. So Lord, show us your glory. Show us yourself. Amen.